Let's welcome our Pastor Mike this morning. When uh, Lisa and I first came to Risen King 13 years ago, we, um, we, we said to the people, we believe God has a plan for our, for our church. We believe God has a, uh, a plan for how to reach the people of Rockland County. And so we asked the church to come together and to pray. And as we did, we began to hear really clearly God's heart for children. And it uh, became very clear that uh, the Spirit of the Lord was really moving in our hearts to change the church and to make this a place where children would encounter God. And so the first person that we, we hired was we hired Lisa to come in and start a children's program and, and to begin to move in that direction. And as she was doing that, she was mentoring and she was uh, discipling uh, Pauline Chan. And as Pauline stepped up into the children's pastorate, she took it into a whole new level of kids encountering God, particularly encountering the Holy Spirit, children having experiences of, of prophetic and, and journaling and, and just, just this amazing thing where we've seen over the last nine years or so, we've seen hundreds of children come to Jesus Christ as their Savior. And uh, Pauline has uh, transitioned us to a, a new curriculum that's really uh, in a a partnership between the home and the church of really giving our kids uh, an environment and powerful influences so that they can succeed and live out their faith in the world. And she's done a wonderful job of getting us ready. But in doing so, her own life, her circumstances, particularly uh, as her children have gotten older and some of the ways that her family uh, dynamic is happening, she has come to us and said that she's transitioning out of being our children's pastor. And uh, she's done this for nine years. It's really hard to say goodbye to her, uh, but she feels she's heard from the Lord about this. And so what we want to do as a church is we really want to bless her. Her next, uh, next Sunday will be her last Sunday with us as our children's pastor. Pauline hates direct attention, so give her lots of it. Uh, <laughs> she doesn't like that kind of stuff. But if you could let her know how much we appreciate, how much love that we have for her, uh, Frank and Pauline and the kids are still going to be a part of our church and everything, but she's transitioning into a, a little different career and a little different direction as the Lord has led her. So I'd like for us to just pause and thank the Lord for Pauline and for what she's done for us. Obviously, even right now, she's downstairs working, and we're just thankful for her faithful obedience in that. Can we pray together for her? Lord, um, so much of what you've told us over the years has had to do with children and how you've wanted us to facilitate and be catalytic as a place of encounter, maybe even a, a primary place of encounter for the kids of this community. And we have been so thankful to start from nursery on up to see this happening, to have children meet you, meet the Spirit, begin to realize that you care for them, that you love them, and that you have things for them that are wonderful. And uh, Lord, that was, that was Pauline's mission. That was her vision for us. And uh, you gave her the means by which to do that, and, and our church has been so blessed by it. We bless the Chan family, Lord, together. We thank you for their service to us, and we 
Thankful that they're still a part of our family, just a transition, but we want to pause and just give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will take your, your worship folder or your bulletin, uh, our scripture for today is on the, the front. We are doing a, a study together in the book of Joshua, and we are jumping around a little bit. We started last week in chapter 1, but we're jumping over to chapter 5. And the reason I, I, I want to do this is because, one, I'm the boss and I'm the ch- pastor. And <laughs> that doesn't really work around here. But uh, the reason that I want to do this really is because I think and I believe that God is on the move in your life. And when he is on the move, you have to know how to respond. And, and when this passage comes in, in chapter 5... It really gives us the pattern for how a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, begins to respond when God is on the move. Because there's a, there's a protocol, there's, there's a pattern that God gives throughout his word about who he is and then how he wants you to align to who he is. And I, I believe that not only can you cross over into your promised land, But you can also be sustained there if you understand your position with Christ. And so this is about position. This is about how you begin to respond and react to God. And this passage, like no other one, shows really powerfully how a man of God encountered God and then made subsequent changes because of it. So let's read. It's short. We'll read it together. This is Joshua chapter 5. I like it when you read out loud with me. So let's read God's word together out loud. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So let's, let's set this, this experience of Joshua with the commander of the Lord's army into the narrative of the Israelites. When uh, God spoke to Abraham, and then he spoke subsequently to every other generation, he spoke very specifically about a land that he had promised them. And he not only said there would be a land, but he, he, he said, here's the north boundary, here's the south boundary, the east, the west boundary. He tells them exactly what that land would be. And that promise was carried from Abraham to every subsequent generation, even to the generation that found itself as slaves in Egypt because the Pharaoh who came to power at that point did not remember Joseph. And so as Moses led the people out of Egypt and they began to journey to this promised land, they get to this one spot across the Jordan River. Now, at that point, God speaks to Moses and says, take 
one superior individual, one, one high up individual who is from each tribe and send them over to scout out the land. So they send 12, 12 scouts as representatives of these different tribes. Now, one of these scouts is Joshua. But when Joshua comes to Moses, his name is not Joshua. His name is Hushea. And as, as Moses meets Hushea, uh, which that name itself means salvation, when he meets him, he changes his name, which is a significant thing in Scripture. When your name gets changed, it is a change of spiritual status. It is a change of authority. It is, a, it is a prophetic word over you. So he changes his name and he adds Yahweh to Joshua's original name. And so he becomes, instead of just Hosea, he becomes Joshua, which means the Lord is your salvation. Now, as he makes this change, as he calls him, and he makes this change, you see, something is going on in the prophetic realm. All right, let me, let me just read to you what happens here. It has never ceased to seem significant to the Christian that this name of Joshua should have been that by which our Lord himself was called. In its Greek form, Jesus, it was given to him because he was to save his people from their sins. By his distinctive name among men, he was linked to Joshua and in the salvation he accomplished for his people, we are therefore led to expect the same leading characteristics as distinguish the salvation of Israel by Joshua. You see, Moses changed Joshua's name, but he gave him the very name that the Messiah would have. Now, there's a number of implications in this, but let me give you just one that I think is essential. God understands how difficult faith is for you. He understands how hard it is for you to believe. So he gives you example after example after example. He gives you visuals. Joshua is a forerunner of Jesus. Joshua, in his leading the people across the Jordan, against Jericho, into the promised land... Joshua, in all of his faithfulness to God and, and his responsibilities of the people, all of this is a picture for you to look at and say, look how much God cares for me. As he saved this people from the slavery in Egypt, as he slaved, saved them from wandering in the desert, as he placed them in a promised land that flowed with milk and honey, so this is the same God who pursues me. This is the same God who has promises for me. This is the same God who has blessings for me. In the Bible, it has some really powerful truths where it talks about the future that God has for you is filled with commanded blessings. They are not blessings that you earn. They are blessings that he's commanded for you. The future that he has for you is a planned future with desired outcomes. But the issue for many of us, sadly, is that many of you will die with many of those blessings still in the warehouse because you don't trust him, because you're convinced you know better how to lead your life 
how to find your promised land than he knows. And so, so many of you are working your own dreams, you're working your own visions, you're, you're trying to in some way make your own future, in a sense, without knowing it, you're on a program of self-salvation. And when you're doing that, and then God seems like he's opposed to you, or he's not coming along with your agenda, he calls you back to look at how he has, in these patterns, how he has always revealed himself, how he reveals himself in Joshua, but also how he reveals himself to Joshua. Now, Joshua had this new name on him. He went into the land. You see, in chapter 5, what we read here is not the first time Joshua has been to Jericho. Joshua had been to Jericho 40 years earlier. And Joshua had looked at Jericho, and he'd seen that it's a fortified city. He'd seen that the walls are thick. He'd seen that this was one of the most progressive technologically advanced cities in the world. And he himself, who, was, who had acted as general of the Lord's army and had taken forth uh, people who had no military skill and who had no technological advances whatsoever, he knew that the only thing that would bring down the walls of Jericho were the presence of God and the promise of God because he did not have the weaponry to do it. But when he went back, he... And one other scout, there was one scout by the name of Caleb. And Caleb was of the tribe of Judah. These two men were literally princes of their tribes. They were, they were the darlings of their tribes. They were the best and the cream of the crop of their tribes. And only Caleb and only Joshua, they were the only ones who came back and said, the promise of God is enough and the presence of God is enough. The other ten said, Yes, it is a desirable land. Yes, it flows with milk and honey. But they said, we will die there. We will be destroyed there. They looked with their eyes, and they saw giants, and they saw obstacles, and they saw challenges. I don't know how many people maybe once having gotten a vision from God end up leaving that vision because there are challenges. I mean, it would seem like... In Many of us, it would seem like if we just get into the promised land, everything will be dandy. But as soon as they cross the Jordan River, they have to fight a battle. In order to establish themselves in their own land, they have to win battle after battle after battle. And so many of us, because the challenges and the obstacles are so great, and because our expectations are often so wrong of what the promises mean, and what the presence of God means, we give up long before we ever see the breakthrough. It's interesting that Jesus said it this way. He said, you know, in this world you will have trouble. And then he says, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. But he's given you the ministry that he had, which is an overcoming ministry. And he's also given you the spirit that he has, which is an overcoming spirit. And in some sense, and maybe you can catch this and it'll resonate with you, but there's some sense that when the Spirit of Christ speaks to your spirit, it speaks to that place of overcoming. And you begin to hear and begin to understand, even if you are afraid, you begin to hear and you begin to understand that that which is born of God must overcome the world. That you weren't put here 
and you're not in this time just to coast. Let me put it another way. By the time Joshua 5 happens, Caleb is 85 years old. Joshua is probably 80, year old, 80 year old, years old. They were probably in their 40s when they spied out the land. Now, it's 40 years later. I want to tell you something. As long as there's breath in you, there's a promised land. There's a, there, there's a city to conquer. There's a place. There's a destiny. There are promises. There are blessings. Many of us start dying really early. And we start believing that, you know, I'm too tired, I'm too sick, I'm too, I'm too weak, I'm whatever. I, I look at this passage and I go, Lord, I want the spirit of Caleb. Lord, I want the spirit of Joshua. I want to be 80 years old and still taking hills for you. Come on, anybody else? I mean, I began, you begin to realize that we give in and give up long before the land is ours. Because it's hard. And because things change. And because we constantly have to go back to God instead of just getting one word and then running on. It's a dependence on God that has to take place. And so what happens is that the ten spies completely activate the fear of all the people. As a matter of fact, the scriptures that teach us about this story are in numbers. Now, what happens to a lot of us is we've never read Numbers because we start our read our Bible in a year thing and we get through Exodus and we start getting into Numbers and we go, I'm done. Give me, give me a thought for the day or whatever, you know, forget this stuff. But in the midst of Numbers, there are gems. You know, you have to kind of get over the other parts, Evelyn Wood speed reading parts, you know, and... and Get to, the, get to these gems. There, in Numbers, there's this whole story of how it played out with the scouts. This was their big chance. This was their opportunity. A whole generation who had lived their lives as slaves are now about to become the owners of their own land. God has promised them. God's presence is with them. But as soon as the ten spies come back, they take the negative reports. And they hear their giants, their obstacles, there's difficulties. And the fear becomes contagious. And not only do they get fearful, it actually says that the congregation took up stones to where they were going to kill Moses, Joshua, and Caleb and silence the positive voice. I'm always a little nervous that we have a gravel parking lot. <laughs> They're not big stones, right? And I can run fast. Now, you would think, though, they're so angry, and their anger, this is important you understand, their anger is fueled by their fear. Their disobedience is fueled by their fear. Their, their willingness to murder their own leaders is fueled by their fear. And they are so fearful. There are people that say to me all the time, if there wasn't something to be afraid of, I wouldn't be afraid. And yet, listen, it says the very glory of the Lord, the manifest presence of God, the glory of the Lord appeared. It did not stop their fear. 
they were still more afraid of the people across the river than they were the God in their camp. And so what happened is Moses and Joshua began to implore the people. And I probably had missed this before, but he says to them, it's not up here, but he says to them in, in Romans 14, I mean Numbers 14, he says, do not rebel against the Lord by your fear. And then he says, the fear that they have is of the people they haven't even seen. And a land in which someone else is reporting. But it's important that you get this. At the root of all of your disobedience, friends, is a rebellion that comes from fear. The fear that you won't get to do what you want to do. The fear you won't be safe. The fear you'll fail. The fear of other people. The fear of the future. The fear of the uncertain. When you are rebelling, you are aligning yourself to your fear. And the sad part about this is most of us, we really do not take seriously fear as a sin issue. We take adultery seriously. We take lying seriously. We, we take other things seriously, but we do not take our fear seriously. Here's how serious the Bible takes your fear. It calls it rebellion. And then it says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Now, why would it say that your fear leads to witchcraft? Because probably very few of you are witches in this room. Could be some, could be some here. Why would it say that? It, it says this for this reason. There are things that God has delegated to you over which you have authority. There are things that you have the right to control, and there are things you have the ability to control. Primary, primary among what you have the right and ability to control is you. Because the fruit of the Holy Spirit is not control of everybody else, but it's self-control. And what most of us do when we are fearful is we lose all self-control and we begin to try to control circumstances, people, so that we get our way. For years, I, I, I've always loved my mother, but no one ever irritated me theologically more than my mother. <laughs> because, I mean, no matter what I was going through, I, you know, some girl broke my heart. I called her up trying to get comfort from mom. She quotes Romans 8.28 to me. <laughs> All things work together for good. I'm like, right now, I don't want to hear that. So, you know, as I got a little older, I got a little more theologically sophisticated, all of this kind of stuff, and she'd start on her little, you know, theological thing. She loved to say, oh, God is in control. And I'd say, well, then, Mom, why are you so worried? Why are you filled with anxiety? Why is it you manipulate? Why do you control people? Why do you guilt people? Why do you shame people in order to get your way? Why? She goes, just shut up. At that point, I'm no longer Pastor Mike. I'm no longer Reverend Dr. Mike. I'm Michael Wayne Plunkett who needs to shut his mouth because <laughs> his mama told him so. You see, I'm not trying to pick on my mother, but it's, it's a common thing that people have a declaration of theology that they do not live out in their life. 
that they'll declare you're a sovereign God, you're in control, all things work together for good, and yet practice witchcraft by trying to control things you neither have a right to control nor do you have the ability to control. So you have to go into manipulation, intimidation, and even domination. And when you're doing that, you're stepped out of the promised land, and now you're in no man's land. There's not protection there. God has not promised to fulfill your fantasy. But he has promised to fulfill his word. And as I said last week, one of the greatest things is not the permission that we have, which we do have. We have permission to go to God anytime and say, Lord, I want this. He never, he never cast you out for saying that. We have permission of God to go and say, Lord, I really need this. There's permission. Jesus says, ask whatever you will. So there's permission for that. But there is not the kind of power in those two prayers that there is in the prayer when you say, but Father, you promised. Any parent in this room, any person of integrity in this room, if somebody says to you, but you promised me, it strikes a chord like nothing else. And this is, this is, this people have refused now, and they have rebelled against his promise, against his presence. Now, this leads to some pretty serious and sad consequences here. In Numbers 14, these verses here, he speaks to this rebellious generation, and he says to them, not a single one of you will enter the land. This entire generation, he says to them, this entire generation will die outside the promise except for Joshua and Caleb. Caleb, I will give him the land. Joshua, I will give him the land. But the rest of you will die. I, I know this sounds harsh, but there are times when God says, if this generation will not do it, I will wait for the next one. And God is patient. And he's willing to expunge the rebellion for 40 years and to weed out all of the corruption for 40 years. He's willing to do that so that when the generation who does enter the land is no longer a generation of rebellion or fear. Now, I don't understand this fully, but there is in this passage a moment when God says, enough. I have offered to you, I have promised you, I have come and been present with you, and you have made a choice that fear is better than me. Now, I don't know what it takes to get, to God, get God to that point. But it says here, they got him to that point. I think it's this, though. I think there are times in history when God's on the move and he says, I need a people who are faithful. I need a people who are responsive. But probably more than anything else, he probably is saying, I need a people who have courage, who know that they're giants and still go, who know that they're fortified cities and still say, those walls are nothing compared to my God. Are we that people? 
Are we a generation he has to wait for the next one? Or are we the generation who will rise up and say, Lord, where you're moving, we will follow? Because that's what this passage is really about. It's about the way a people respond to what God does in every generation. And there are patterns in Scripture that when God is moving in a powerful way to establish something new, he looks for a people who will go all the way with him. Is this making sense to you this morning? So here's Joshua, 40 years later, probably 80 years old at this point. He's thinking about the battle. He's hearing the voices of the past. He's remembering what he said to the people. Let us not rebel against the Lord. Let's, let's not be afraid. Now, he's all alone on the battlefield looking at the walls. Can you picture that? All of a sudden, scriptures say that a man shows up. And uh, this man, now the Bible kind of, in a sense, how the translation comes out, it all seems sort of sparse in a sense. But let me tell you what's behind what's being said there. When it declares that a man is there with a drawn sword, what it's really saying is a man, a warrior, is there armed to the teeth. He's completely in armor. He's totally ready for battle. And his sword is already drawn. And when it says that, it's saying something like this. Battle is about to happen. The sword is about to be used. We're not talking about, isn't that a nice statue-looking thing over there? We're talking about a threat. We're talking about an imminent danger. And then it says this 80-year-old man, Joshua, it's so funny because we translate it. He went to him as if he sauntered over like an old man. But what it means there is he got in this man's face. So here's 80-year-old Joshua. He draws his sword, and he goes face-to-face and toe-to-toe with this warrior. And he puts his sword in his face, and he says, Are you for us, or are you against us? Because he's basically what he's saying, this isn't a national park here. This is a battlefield. And the battle has begun, and I want to know, do I need to kill you now? This guy's got some chutzpah, you know? (laughs) I mean, we're talking about, I mean, this is amazing when you get this story. You know, this old man pulls his sword. You know, he doesn't go, hey, come help me. He does it himself. And he goes, and he says, What all of us want to say to other people, are you for me or are you against me? And the amazing thing is that he doesn't answer his question. Doesn't that just irritate the daylights out of you? (laughs) You ask a question and they either ask another question or they answer. Well, what we see here is he he actually says your question is the wrong question. And all he says is no. All he says is no. Now, let's think about, there's four quick things I want to unpack for you from the no and from what this encounter. The first one is this. Um, Oops, sorry. This is the first time that we realize that God can come in the form of a man. Now, why do I say that? I'm saying that because this is not an angel. Now, this is Jesus. 
So Jesus, Joshua, is meeting Jesus. Joshua, Yeshua, is meeting Yeshua on the battlefield. This is powerful when you look at this. This is Jesus. Now, how do I know it's not an angel? Well, because humans are not allowed to worship angels. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 8, John experiences an angel, an, an angelic visitation. He says, I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things, and, whom I, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. And he says to him, worship God. See, an angel would not allow worship for God to be given to an angel. And so when Joshua meets the commander of the Lord, he falls down and worships him. And then instead of saying, no, don't worship me, I'm just an angelic being, he actually says to him, worship me more. Can you, can you guys advance this? It died on me. Thank you. So he even asks for more worship. So he says to him, cleanse yourself. Get rid of the dirtiness. Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Has this happened before? Yes. You remember the burning bush? And out of the burning bush, the scripture says, not an angel of the Lord spoke. It actually says, the angel or the messenger of the Lord, who is the Lord himself. Jesus has been showing up all through the Old Testament because he wants you to recognize him when he comes in his incarnation. Now, the second thing about this, and it's also equally important, not only can God show up in human form to deliver us, but also this is the point where he's saying, he is the only one who can give us an intimate connection with God himself. There is an exclusivity to the claim of Jesus. No one else can become the very bridge through which you, a sinful man or woman, can then have relationship with God. If you think that Joshua is unique and not like you in any way, I guarantee you, that if Joshua was a unique and holy, saintly kind of man, he would have stayed upright in the face of God. But because he was a broken and a spiritually bankrupt man, and because he knew his own disobedience, his own shame, his own corruption, when he knew who he was in the presence of, he immediately fell on his face. See, what is showing there is so powerful. I, I've met many people who've said it to me, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God this question. And I'm going to look him in the eyes and I'm going to say, you got some explaining to do. I'm, I'm going to kind of tell you that ain't going to happen. If you get to speak at all. Every time anyone has even met just angels, they fell like dead men. But here, Joshua realizes that before him is the Lord himself. Now, here's how Jesus explains this. In Malachi chapter 3, 
there's a prophecy that says first the messenger will come. And who's that messenger? It's John the Baptist. And then it says, but also the Lord himself will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, it uses the word angel there, but the messenger of the covenant of the Lord will come in whom you delight. And when Jesus in Matthew 11, when he says that scripture is fulfilled in John the Baptist, he's also implying that he's the Lord himself who has come to his temple. He's the Lord himself who has made covenant so that you and I can come into intimate relationship with God. Maybe this is my theological imagining, but there was some kind of a, a conversation that took place way before the earth ever was created. And in that conversation, the Father said, these that we are going to create will rebel. Who will go for us to redeem that corrupt generation? Who will go for us to make... make you know, the payment for the penalty of their sin. Who will go? And, and we, I think we get a glimpse in Isaiah 6 when Jesus is speaking and Isaiah says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And I think long before Isaiah ever said, here am I, send me, I think the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the very Son of God, raised his hand. He said, here am I, send me, send me. You see... When, when we're talking about this covenant being made, when we're talking about how you and I come into this intimate relationship with God, love didn't start when God created humans. Love has always existed in community. This is, this is why it is essential, and maybe you don't like doctrine, but this is why it's essential that we understand God has always existed in three persons. He is one God, but existing in three persons. Because in that community of Father and Son and Holy Spirit, love has eternally existed. This covenant that Jesus enacts for us by his death on the cross is not the beginning of love. It's the invitation for you to enter into the love that has always existed. You are invited through Jesus' death, through Jesus' And through faith in him, you are invited to join in the inner circle of the love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father. And that love is the same love he has for you. Because you are in Christ, and if you are in Christ, then you are loved as if you were Christ. Well, not only do we relate only to God through Jesus, but also... It's important that you know who this Jesus is. <laughs> it's funny sometimes when you think about the way people picture Jesus. There are some people who picture him as, you know, Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. Or maybe you're like me. I grew up with my grandmother's Jesus picture in the living room. <laughs> the one where the eyes follow you all over. <laughs> Here's the picture of Jesus that the Bible gives. He's a little awesome. See, when he meets with Jacob, he's not Jesus meek and mild. He's Jesus of the World Wrestling Federation. (laughs) 
I mean, he, he toys with Jacob for the whole night, and then with one touch of his finger, he puts Jacob's hip out of socket so that he walks with a limp for the rest of his life. Job, for 30-some-odd chapters of his book, demands that God answer to him. And he meets God in the storm and realizes God is far greater storm than anything else. And if you notice, in the last five chapters, he never talks like that again. <laughs> Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's army ready for battle, with a sword drawn. See, if you dare, friends, if you're daring to draw near to God and you're trying to make a deal with him, he will always say no. If you want the warm, fuzzy Jesus, the sweet, loving Jesus, but you don't want the great and holy Jesus, you get none of any of it. Not only that, but every person, when we first come to God through Jesus, we all come like Joshua did. We come with an agenda, oh God, I'm hurting, oh God, I need this, oh God, will you, let, will you let this happen? We come bargaining. We all come with some kind of agenda. We say, are you for me or are you against me? And, and how you know people come with that is that when life doesn't go the way they want it to go, they, they say faith doesn't work or they say prayer doesn't work or whatever it is and they just give up on faith. They don't realize that the whole time you've been saying, God, are you for me or against me? He's just been answering no. That's the wrong question. Because the real question is, are you for me or are you against me, God is asking. See, in a sense, if you're living a conditional obedience, which many of us are, and the reason you're living that conditional obedience is fear, is you're afraid you can't trust him. Now, God's not angry about that, but in everything that's going on in your life, he's trying to get you to see the fear, to renounce the fear, to not give yourself over to a spirit of fear, and to begin to live in a new power source of love, a sound mind, and power. But in order for that to happen, you have to recognize your fearfulness and not let it be the eyes through which you look at all reality. For example, one of the things that's here is that you can't forget that when he met Joshua, he had a sword drawn. <laughs> he had a sword drawn. I mean, it's enough he's God. But he's got a sword now. Right? I mean, does that not strike you? The only other time we see God using a sword is when he kicks him out of the Garden of Eden and he says, you can't come back. And a flaming sword guards the garden so you can't get there. <laughs> so this is, a, this is a pretty big deal. And the question in one way is, why do you have the sword drawn? And since it's drawn, why didn't you cut off his head? Why didn't you, why didn't you strike him? Well, because the sword that he has drawn is the sword upon which he himself will die. See, when, when Jesus, the commander of the Lord's army, came to Jerusalem. He didn't come on a stallion like a conquering hero. He came on the foal of a donkey. He came on the most humble creature you could possibly find. And he didn't come in power, but he came to die. See, the reason he didn't have to kill Joshua is because he was going to take the sword himself. And everything changes when Jesus takes the condemnation 
and when he takes the punishment and when he takes the betrayal on himself and now Romans 8 starts to make sense because it says now Jesus stands and speaks over you and says if God is for you who can be against you you understand the change of that I mean there's this there's this ambiguity in the battlefield are you for us or are you against us and Jesus says no that's not the issue are you for me are you against me and then because of the cross and because what Jesus suffered on our path our, our part because he was forsaken because he took the punishment that we deserve now we can stand there and we can say with all confidence if God be for me who can be against me he who did not spare his own son will he not freely give us all things in him what can separate me from the love of God in Christ it is pitiful that we are fearful people. It is pitiful because we don't understand who it is that we follow or what he's done for us. We still let circumstances and people and the uncertainty get us right back to a non-trust, fearful place. Aren't you tired of that? Isn't it time... To walk into those commanded blessings? Isn't it time for you to stand up to the enemy who speaks fear into your heart and says you'll never be good enough, you'll never achieve enough, you'll never have enough money, you'll never be safe enough? Isn't it time to say, he has not given me a spirit of fear? Shut up in Jesus' name. <laughs> Will you stand with me? Is this one last thing as we pray together? The Jesus who put Jacob's hip out. The Jesus who spoke to Job in the storm. The Jesus who appeared to Joshua with the drawn sword. Do you think he wants to be your personal assistant? You see, in some ways, if you're living a conditional obedience and if you're saying... To Jesus, I'll only do what I think is best for me, and I'll only do what I want to do, and all like that, then guess what? You're still the commander of your own army. And as long as you're the commander, he's not going to be your lieutenant. He's not going to be your assistant. You can't have the creator of the universe as your accomplice. He's either the commander or he's not. I just think he's worthy of your trust. Now, he's pursued you. He sought you out. He's chosen you. You're the one he wants to enter the land with. Isn't it time that you stop rebelling in fear? And you begin to say, you're my commander. I'm going to ask you to try a couple words as we finish together, as we close out together. Would you try these words? Lord, I trust you. See, you only follow someone you trust. And if you trust him, if you trust him, you will respond. I, I will guarantee you that if you'll tune your ears, you'll hear what you need to hear about your marriage. You'll hear what you need to hear about your children. You'll hear what you need to hear about your career, your relationships, your friendships, even your money, your health, all those things. Because the commander of the Lord's army 
wants to speak to you. And all you need to do is align yourself to what he's doing. No wall of Jericho could stand against the commander. No river swollen to flood stages could stand against the commander. But it calls on you to yield and to trust him. Lord, we seal what you're doing today. I believe you are speaking deeply to a people. Obviously, we get choices. We get to make individual choices. But it would be really something in this day to once again see a people move together to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth and to see what is true of heaven be true right here in Rockland County. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Have a great week.